Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Fullcast and Crew podcast. My guest this week is Rick Brown, a good friend of mine who's back for his second appearance on the pod a few months back. Rick joined me to discuss network in all its glory. Check that one out if you haven't heard it. It's one of the better episodes of the podcast if you're really into network or Sidney Lumet or Bill Holden or Faye Dunaway or any number of pretty cool subjects that Rick and I ended up covering. This episode has kind of a funny origin story, which is the first thing you'll hear me uh, explain to Rick as we jump into our discussion about the TV series Columbo, which has been referenced on the podcast for as long as the podcast has existed. You're probably familiar with the Columbo Cinematic Universe, which bizarrely we forgot to get into in our discussion that you're about to hear. So here's my conversation with Rick Brown about Columbo, and it begins with the somewhat unusual origin story of this particular episode. I have a colleague, Alex, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, and she texted me last week and said, I don't know if you know this, but my mother listens to every single episode of the podcast. I said, oh, that's fantastic. So then she said, in fact, she has a suggestion for you to do an episode about Columbo because she's heard you talk about Columbo so much and she and my dad love Columbo. And I said, great, I'm looking for an excuse to do that. This could be that excuse. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, you had the, you know, the, the format of the show with the co-hosts for the first, I don't know if yeah. it was a year or two years that you were doing yeah. it. And then at some point, you know, after, after Chris left uh, the, uh, that format, then you started doing this sort of more personalized version for what you called the yep. second season, which I thought was a great way of branding it. Mm-hmm. And then only after that, you ended up with this uh, pandemic situation and all of your shows switched from being an in-studio type of thing to being this Zoom format. Yeah. And it's a different show, but it's yeah. it feels like the right time to be doing the format you're doing right now. It does. And I think it also, I don't know, there's something connected to the, I mean, obviously the obvious pandemic connection is sort of like, yeah, it's harder to do them. So we do less of them, but it really isn't that. It's just that like everything, you know, doing a podcast, like doing it every week is kind of the most important thing to start out just to get consistency and get people expecting to have you and to hear you. But then after you do, you know, whatever I've done, 88 of these or something, you realize like when you can catch something special and that those are the ones you're really after. And I think waiting for them to kind of pop up organically and pandemically to have them be able to do zooms with people that I wouldn't be able to get in the office has been great too, you know? So, and it's, so it's different and um, I'm enjoying it. Then the funniest part about Alex's mom and dad is then after I said, yeah, I would love to do Columbo. Are you kidding? She said, okay, my mom also typed up a list of questions, which I shared with you which are amazing. So I want to say that Cindy and Mike, this episode is inspired by you. It's for you. And hopefully Rick and I, who, by the way, my guest, Rick Brown, who has also been on the podcast before, is, I couldn't think of anyone more perfect to do the Columbo episode with because Richard and I share an affinity for television of this era. We share an appreciation for Columbo. And I think it'll be a very interesting traipse down these 22 questions that Cindy and Mike submitted. So I thought for a format, Rick, what we could do is I suggested that we watch Try and Catch Me, which to me is one of my favorite Columbo episodes, but only in a very specific slice. I'm going to just generally call it 
my favorite good Columbo episode in that I don't mean other ones that I love are bad. I just mean that other ones take camp to a level beyond 10 with certain guest stars like the Roddy McDowells, the Shatners, the greatest scenery chewer in the history of Columbo, Donald Pleasance. Uh, who am I forgetting? Our boy, Jack Cassidy, mm-hmm. right? Those are different. Like, those are great. But those are operatically kind of over the top at some times. Right. Well, you're going to like different episodes for different different reasons. Yes. You know, sometimes it's the guest star. Sometimes it's really the writing and the mystery and that it's actually, you know, a well-directed or well-written episode. Mm-hmm. It's okay to have multiple favorites for different reasons. Yes. This one for me, though, is what you just said. I think the writing, I think the tone of it is so different than almost any other Columbo. And I think the heart of it is, is what I really respond to every time I watch. I watched it again last night. I've probably seen it 10 times. Columbo's speech in front of the ladies auxiliary, where he sort of, for the only time in the series, really kind of explains the heart and soul of the character and the mission that he's on is so profound and great. Like, I don't use that term lightly. I think it's really a brilliantly written little speech that he delivers there. I talk better when this is lit. (laughs) I didn't expect anything like this. I came here just like you to enjoy the famous Abigail Mitchell. Uh, As for all that chemical stuff, I think Miss Mitchell was putting on because I don't know anything about that. (laughs) And about my work being dark and frightening, I'll tell you the truth. I'm not sure about that either. I like my job. Oh, I like it a lot. And I'm not depressed by it. And I don't think the world is full of criminals and full of murderers because it isn't. It's full of nice people just like you. And if it wasn't for my job, I wouldn't be getting to meet you like this. (laughs) And I'll tell you something else. Even with some of the murderers that I meet, I even like them too. Sometimes. Like them and even respect them. Not for what they did. Certainly not for that. But for that part of them which is intelligent or funny or just nice. Because there's niceness in everyone. A little bit anyhow. It can take a cop's word for it. Thank you, ladies. And Ruth Gordon, who I got into this a little bit with my guest, Ted Jessup, when we did Rosemary's Baby, I like Ruth Gordon when she's not doing Harold and Maude cutesy Ruth Gordon. I like when she's doing kind of Ruth Gordon where there's a sinisterness underneath the routine. And much like Rosemary's Baby, you have that here. And I think that makes for a fantastic villain. Oh, I agree. I mean, uh, she uh, she seems to be very involved with this character that she's playing um, and aware of the fact that her character is being observed by other people as this, uh, um, you know, uh, as a you know an old lady, uh, right? All the sort of the uh, you know the semiotics of uh, of age and being a uh, you know a literary person, and she's a very well liked. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she has this huge you know this you know women's auxiliary, you know this country club full of women in hats who come out to see her, and she's that person. 
but she's also somebody who is devious, devious enough to execute a real live murder and not just, I mean, this is an irregular Columbo murder, I think, as far as the, um, the gravity of what it is that she's done to her victim. Um, you know, what, uh, you know, you know, typically in these kinds of things, there's a, you know, there's a, a shooting or, a, or a, you know, a, you know, a blown up car or something like this. Um, you know, somebody suffocating to death overnight in the dark. Um, that's to to be able to sort of like absorb that um, as a human being is um, is really psychotic. When you watch this episode, you can see her as an actress sort of working all the different parts. Sometimes she's a nice old lady. Sometimes she's crazy. Sometimes she's trying to work Columbo. Sometimes she's making fun of Columbo. I mean, you could watch this again and again and see so many layers to her performance. She really is great. And she's 81 years old at the time that she's being made. I mean, she's not only a veteran actress, but she's somebody who's got all, she's still got everything working as, you know, as an actress, you know, somebody who's at in the September of their years, she's, she's, she pulls off quite a performance. She does. And in addition to the atypical nature of the murderer, which is well said, I don't know how you take it. I take it that it's a murder. It's, it's a not unfounded murder outside the taking the law into your own hands aspect. But I personally believe the setup and that the guy that she kills, who was the husband of her niece who went missing off a sailboat, which only she and her husband were on. In the beginning of the episode, Ruth Gordon looks at him as they're going for a walk on the beach and in a prelude to the murder says, I know what you did. Right. And he gives her this look and the actor is quite good. I think who plays, who, who plays him. He's one of those guys. If you look on IMDb, he's been working for, you know, 50 years in movies and TV. I think it's pretty clear to me. He did it. He killed the niece. And since she signed over the rights to her lucrative play and book publishing to the niece. And when the niece died, this guy now inherits everything of Abigail's fortune. And that's the impetus. She not only has him, become the beneficiary of her will, but she also takes the trouble of having G.D. Spradlin, who you'll remember from Godfather 2, she has G.D. Spradlin draw up, I took the liberty of drawing yours up too, <laughs> so that if he were to die, it reverts back to her. And that's the, that's the mechanism by which the murder is set in motion. But I always feel like, and we'll get into this in a couple of Cindy's questions, because she asks a very smart question about, you know, are there any times where Columbo lets the murderer get away or where the murderer gets away with it in Columbo? And there are a couple. This one, to me, always felt like it should have been that. I, I'm team I'm team Abigail. I don't really mind that this guy got murdered in the safe, and I think she should have gotten away with it. But it's part of the brilliance of the Columbo character that, that you and I both know that would never happen. He would never deviate from being the professional. And in the end, he says, you're very professional in your work, ma'am, and, and so am I. So it's never an issue for him to let someone get away with murder. But the murder's justified here. Come on. I don't know how you can say the murder of Edmund, the... Uh, the uh, he killed the... He pushed, he pushed the niece off what the boat. What do you base that on? She just disappeared oh. on the boat. There's not a Rick. thread of evidence. There's not a body. There's nothing. 
what about his facial expressions when put on the spot by Abigail? Don't you think those are guilty expressions? I think you're extrapolating. Um, uh, really? Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, honestly, you don't think there's any intimation that he did it. I think that part of what makes it an interesting and layered episode is that the writer has made it, the, the screenwriter has made it deliberately vague. Yes. Whether uh, Abigail is acting out of pure emotion and vengeance mm-hmm. uh, based on her own assumptions about something that happened. When there isn't, mm-hmm. you can't point to a single thing. Other, the only thing we know about this boating accident, would ha- which happened months before the timeline of this series, is that the niece disappeared. That's it. Right. And the uh, the uh, the surviving husband um, at least portrays that this is he's heartbroken. Yeah, this is a heartbreaking loss for him. You don't think that his his natty blazer and watch and firmly pressed shirt and slacks and red Mercedes sports car show that he's perhaps not quite as broken up as you would indicate? Uh, Not to me. And in fact, (laughs) you know, one of the things that uh, in the scene where I don't want to get too far ahead as far as if you're you're doing a whole synopsis here, but in the scene where Colombo and Abigail go to visit uh, Edmund, the nephew's apartment, uh, Columbo, uh, goes to length, uh, sort of, he's sort of looking all around the place and doing all this kind of weird stuff with his eyes and his hands. And what we find out that when opening up drawers and what we find out is that he's trying to establish that there are no pictures anywhere. And to him, this is evidence of, of a loveless, uh, relationship that was going mm. on or something like mm. that, uh, before the niece, uh, disappeared mm-hmm. and died. And in fact, you know, that's a big assumption to make when uh, about what a surviving spouse would do when their partner, you know, dies or disappears tragically. Maybe the guy doesn't want to look at pictures of his uh, of his deceased wife because uh, because it's too traumatized. I, I totally buy that as a character motivation for him, but I also think that in the construct of the series, we wouldn't get false information from Columbo. Do you know what I mean? So when Columbo goes to the house and makes that observation, I think that's in service of my theory, which is Columbo may well know that this guy pushed the the niece off the boat because I don't think Columbo would go to the house and make make an erroneous deduction. That's not what the character does. Well, so that's, anyway, that's a fair argument. I just you know I I, I think that's a good argument in your in your uh, <laughs> uh, for your case, but. I will just sort of, I will stand on, on my argument that there isn't, you're not provided any information about what actually happened to the niece. And if you're only going by facial expressions, that's not enough to convict. I, I totally not agree with you. To suffocate the guy in, a, in an airtight safe. <laughs> totally agree with you and totally agree that it makes the episode better as a result. So I don't really, we don't need to go through the entirety of the episode. The episode is available, as you pointed out to me last night. All of a sudden, they're all back on Amazon Prime after not being available streaming except on the bizarre Columbo YouTube channel, which has the weirdest collection of only a handful of full episodes. It doesn't even have those anymore, but it had a collection of full episodes, and I guess the deal must have expired for it. It was previously on Netflix the last time I watched Columbo before you know, purchasing the DVD set myself, but now it's back on Amazon Prime. So I guess it's available there for anyone who wants to watch uh, Try and Catch Me, which is just a definitely superlative Columbo episode. If you've heard me and any of the other guests talking about Columbo and sort of our 
curious some night to see what the hell this is all about and why people love this character so much. We'll get into that as we jump into Cindy's questions, but it's a great episode and it's well worth checking out. As a public service to your listeners, I'll also let you know that um, when they disappeared from YouTube, they've also they've also now showed up on the new NBC Peacock streaming service. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, so you can get you can get you can get them in a couple of places. Well, yeah. So the the Peacock is actually there's a free tier, and they have the first four seasons of Columbo for free. If anybody is sort of uh, needs a Columbo Jones or you know a Columbo fix, um, Columbo Jones would be a great remake. There you by go. The way. Um, I'd be curious to know if you buy the service if they have the uh, if they have the rest of the episodes. This particular one we're talking about is season seven, so you can't watch it on Peacock, but at least not on the free here but right uh, maybe they'll have them all eventually uh okay let's jump into cindy's questions because i think these are a fun way to talk about colombo so the first one is who was the most frequent guest star on colombo probably typical to our approach here there are many answers to this question uh the technically correct answer to the question is michael lally who what? is who yes michael lally now michael lally is one of those actors, if people Google him on IMDb, I believe his film credits start in 1930. Uh, and he's just one of those guys who played a variety of drunks, bums, incidental characters uh, throughout just every TV show and most movies made in America for you know close to 70 years. Michael Lally has... 19 Columbo episodes. Yeah, but what, in. just as playing character? Well, yes, he's playing character. So, I mean, it's not a recurring character like the dog. Okay. I think what Cindy means, Cindy and Mike mean, is who who is the guest star murderer, I think, is what she really means. Right, it's Patrick McGowan is the... And it's Pat, Patrick McGowan. Yeah, so we've got four Patrick McGowans uh, on the uh, on the uh, NBC version of the series, and then he did also did one of the ABC uh, uh, episodes uh, that were made in the '90s. Uh, he also directed, I think, six yes. episodes. Uh, That's right, or, and wrote some of them also. But uh, uh, but I think that I think that she's asking about guest stars, and the correct answer is Patrick McGowan. <laughs> I think you're right. Uh, now, what about Jack Cassidy? Must have done at least three. Well. I don't know if he did two or three, but nobody else did four. No one else did four? Yeah. Let me see what Jack Cassidy... I have here the complete list of Columbo repeat performance by actors list. Prepared, prepared by someone named Neil Silverman. Neil, please get help. Seriously. Yes, Jack Cassidy appeared as the murderer in three. Murder by the Book, Publisher Paris, which is a hilariously over-the-top one where he plays Riley Greenleaf, the uh, killer book publisher... And, what kind, uh, of, kind of last name is Greenleaf? What, Riley Greenleaf. What's the? And he also did an, another crazy over-the-top episode is Now You See Him, where he plays the magician. Right. Who's, who's, who goes by the Great Santini. So those are some good ones. Um, oh, he's the Great Santini? Was that before the Great Santini? It was before the Great Santini. But, but Richard, I see here that Robert Culp played the bad guy on four episodes, huh. just like you're claiming... Patrick McGohan did. Are they named in this? Uh... Yes. Columbo goes to college. The most crucial game. Double exposure. 
and death lends a hand. All right. Well, the Columbus goes to college is one of the it's a late one, right? It's a late one. So that might be where the, uh, that doesn't really count to me. Well, we I mean, if McGowan did four classics, I would give him the nod. I don't really count those nineties Columbos. That's not canon. Okay. But crucial game, double exposure, death lend a hand. Those are all classic Columbos and Culp. Culp is a, I would put Culp about third on the list of great hammy uh, Columbo villains. He, he deserves it. He's not up in the top tier. He's not a Donald Pleasance. He's not a Magoon. But he's he's close. He he does a good job, and he's not an actor you would expect to do to do that. I love. Uh, him. I like. I Bob love Culp. all the Robert Culp episodes. Okay, Cindy, Mike. Second question: Who's your favorite Columbo guest star? If you have one. Well. I feel like your your inclination here is to go with one of these sort of like recurring giants of the Columbo universe, a Robert Culp, a Jack Cassidy, a, a, a Robert Vaughn. Uh, all great, by the way. <laughs> Another good one. Yeah. But so it's a little bit of a hard decision. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go off the beaten path a little bit and just go to one of my favorite episodes uh, and choose Susan Clark in Lady, uh, Lady in Waiting. Um, great choice i don't i can't think of another episode of television or anything in film where somebody so successfully uh showed the development of a character using hats that is a great episode and that is an amazing performance you'll recall in the episode that she's that uh she's the uh sort of poor little rich girl she's kind Mm -hmm. of a wallflower and then she ends up killing i think her brother or somebody to try and get at the family inheritance and so she's the sort of the the one you would least suspect of mm-hmm. uh, of uh, uh, murdering somebody on her way to the top, and then she also sort of Pygmalion like makes this transformation from a uh, from a uh, you know a, a mousy thing to a uh, heartless business tycoon with a very big hat. I think that you're mostly appreciating the hats in that answer, what but I, I think you have to go. I think you have to go off the beaten path. Yeah. For me, favorite. Again, it's hard to say favorite because when I think of Columbo, there's 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 slices, there's tiers of what I appreciate. First and foremost, I appreciate Peter Falk and the character and the uniqueness of the setup of the device, in that it's not a whodunit, right? I appreciate so much the hammiest of guest stars, but favorite. It would either be Janet Lee or Donald Pleasance. Do you say Pleasance or Plaisance? I say Pleasance because I'm a normal human being. Nobody says Plaisance. <laughs> you don't think Donald Plaisance. You don't think people say Plaisance sometimes? No, no. Nobody says that. So I just made it up? I think you made that up unless you have a source. Well, I don't have one right in front of me, so we'll have to go well, to Pleasance for now and then uh, fix it, uh, fix it in post. Mentioning both of those people leads into Cindy and Mike's next question. Were the guest stars typically on their way up or down in their careers? I think this is a really interesting question. I want to hear how you answer this. Uh, my argument is neither. I don't, I, don't see, uh, I don't see these guest stars. Again, in the 70s, I was a kid. So a little bit is you know, my understanding of... Um, you know, the level of fame that I think some of these these stars had at the time. But these guys, especially the men, Robert Vaughn, Robert Colt, Eddie Albert, these are all veteran TV guys. And 
they're doing this these this TV show, which is you know, typically a movie length format, and they are they're performing these characters at the high point of scripted TV in the 1970s. These are the these guys are titans of uh, of TV, and I see it as that these guys are at their best. Typically, they're a little bit older because the scripts kind of skew that way. And typically they're, like I said, they're kind of middle-aged white guys. Uh, but I don't think of them as people who are sort of like, they're taking a job on Columbo because uh, they can't get other work. I think this is, I think this is what they do. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think that there is a construct that existed then, which now is completely blown up and, but, but existed up until not too recently, which was, you know, if you're a film star and a movie star, you don't do TV. That's considered slumming. And for for actors of this caliber at this time, it is true that the reason they're doing this is because in the 70s, the film careers of these actors were out of vogue. They're older Hollywood people who's who were not of the moment with new Hollywood and the types of films that were being made. Or, they had eight- or, or Jason, they're, they're, as I said, some of these people that I mentioned, they're, they were never really movie stars. Robert, Fair Culp, enough. Is, Robert Culp is not a, uh, and Absolutely. Robert Vaughn are not, I mean, they were in movies. Right, uh, but not, they're not movie stars. But, you know, Janet Lee. I mean, th- there are movie stars in the Columbo universe. Usually some of the female protagonists tend to be more the movie stars past their prime who are doing this. But to your point, they're doing it because the roles are so good and the, the audience was so big not because they're on the downside of a career. I just think it's because they fit the the requirements for being a great villain in Columbo, which I think is actually very hard to do. And you have to be a master of the television craft of acting. I think of Montalban in the episode where Columbo goes to, to, to Mexico. And we've talked about Montalban on the podcast before when we did Wrath of Khan. But I mean, talk about a master television actor like yes he had some film roles but i mean ricardo Montalban owns the screen in any television setting that he's ever in because he's just so much better than everyone else at acting for television so i think it's fashionable to sort of say like oh they were on the downside and they did they had to do colombo but i agree with you i think it's to, to cindy and mike's next question was it a prestigious role or a sign that era has been uh, I don't think it's a sign that they were has-beens. I, I don't judge I, I like what you said about the about these actors taking on the challenge of these roles uh, and that, I mean, these are not, um, you know, these aren't the B story on Love Boat. Correct. I mean, totally. That's, that's, <laughs> that's on the downside of your career. Right. That's the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Florence Henderson, uh, right. When, when doc is finding a mole on your fingernail, <laughs> right. you know, just, before I, you hit Puerto Vallarta. I just, I just invoked the name of Florence Henderson in a very uh, negative way. And, uh, I hope that gets cut out. Isn't that kind of against your code? Yes. I mean, that's I'd love to be canceled for that in your community. Couldn't you? <laughs> I do love Florence Henderson. Um, okay. Next question. There are no recurring supporting roles. Why is that? Well, again, lovingly, Cindy and Mike, I beg to differ. There's the dog. There's Bob Dishy. 
Um, there are a few recurring character roles. Right. Well, let's talk about some of these that I had that I had found. One is the is uh, veteran uh, uh, stage and uh, um, TV actor Bob Dishy. He did two Columbo's that uh, that I'm aware of, playing Sergeant Wilson. Um, right. In the um, the uh, the now you see him episode with Jack Cassidy that you mentioned, he was also in yeah. Greenhouse Jungle with Ray Milan. Um, yeah. And it's particularly that um, if you go back and see the Greenhouse Jungle one, I like Bob Dishy's role here as kind of the the sober uh, helper of, of yes. Columbo. Um, I don't mean sober in terms of not being drunk. I mean sober in the way of kind of being uh, the logical guy. Right. Um, I, I think what, what was trying to be set up here by the network or, uh, or something was that they really wanted to give Columbo a, uh, a sidekick. Mm-hmm. I got the same impression if you go back and watch uh, the uh, Dabney Coleman and the Double Shock episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, has, he plays a big role as sort of the, the, um, you know, the beat detective who's kind of helping Columbo out. Yeah, I don't, you can feel the network kind of trying it out, right? right? And I think ultimately what happened uh, was that they were that they were trying to give Columbo some kind of sidekick to ground the show for whatever reason. And uh, as I understand it, um, they went to uh, that Stephen Bochco uh, was writing uh, one of the, one of the episodes, and they said, "Can you give him a, uh, a sidekick?" And Stephen Bo- Stephen Bochco said, "Well, how about a dog?" <laughs> which which Peter Falk didn't even want the dog. Right. And the, but he came around. But that was the uh, that was the the compromise that they had was and uh, yeah. Which, by the way, are you a fan of the dog? Oh, I in love Columbo. You do? Yeah. Uh, the dog annoys me. The dog annoys me. You I, and Peter I, I, Falk. I What's that? You and Peter Falk. Hate yeah, I just don't. I, I again, it, it to me, it just it feels forced onto Columbo. I, I and I know there are funny scenes with him and the dog, but like. The dog's barking all the time. I have this thing when I'm watching certain TV series. I don't like to be annoyed by certain sounds and like barking dog annoys me on a TV show. So I'm not a fan of the dog, but I agree with you. It's better than some of the other attempted pairings. But we'd be remiss not to mention the great Bruce Kirby, father of Bruno Kirby. He played Sergeant Kramer in at least four episodes oh, okay. that I know of. All right. So that's a bit of a recurring role. And he too played that similar kind of... Um, Sober is a good word in the context that you're using it. Kind of the the by the book policeman who's kind of questioning the tactics here, because of course Columbo's tactics are just to show up and somehow know exactly who did this before he even encounters. And in, in in try and catch me, I was laughing so hard last night because it's a trope in Columbo where he shows up. He already knows when he arrives at the house of the person who we know committed the murder because we've just seen it. He already knows they did it. That's the thing that Columbo has, right? The way they intimate that in Try and Catch Me is so brilliant. So part of the plot is that Ruth Gordon gets the nephew to drive back through uh, the service entrance to get the, what, the code to the safe or something? She has some way that she lures him back there. And then, of course, or she realizes too late she has his car keys and, like, she didn't leave them in his pocket and he's already in the safe. She can't open it again. So she tucks them into the ashtray that's filled with sand in her lobby right and the first shot post the murder sequence is three colombo stogies stubbed out in the sand and it's so brilliant because to me in the universe that shows you he already knows he already knows at that point 
that she did it, although he doesn't find the keys till later. Right. And then we'd be remiss not to mention that uh, up until this point, I think you're 15 or 20 minutes into the episode. I haven't seen Columbo. So the first uh, indication is after she comes back from her uh, scotch-filled uh, uh, trip yes. back and forth to New York is the three cigar butts in the in the giant ashtray. And then she goes into the uh, office and yes. somebody's in the safe. And you're thinking you're going to see somehow see the... Uh, uh, the Edmund's corpse being taken out in a bag, and instead they open up the door and Columbo, <laughs> Columbo <laughs> comes out of the safe. What a great, so good, horny. Oh, it's just awesome. You know what also is great? I love the character way the way they do the flight. She's flying to New York to receive an award, so she flies with GD Spradlin, or is she flying with GD, or she's she's flying with Marielle Hartley? I can't remember who she's flying with. I don't remember who's on the plane. Right, I know that that the lawyer gives her the give her a ride to the airport, but I, I don't know. We don't see I her think on she, the plane. Well, and then the, the way that she, they get her back is, I think it's through a phone call. I think so. It's, so Mariel Hartley plays the assistant, right? Right. Cause she's the one who finds the body. So she called, she calls her and you hear the phone call, but you see, just see a, pl- a shot of a plane traveling now East to West to get back to California. And then you hear, Ruth Gordon's character, who on the way out, who's when, when everything is supposedly okay and she's en route to an event to capture a big award, she says, can we have a scotch on the rocks? Then you hear the phone call alerting her to the bad news that her nephew has been found dead. And then you hear the character jauntily order the scotch on the rocks the same way, which is such <laughs> a great little audio touch. We don't see this. We just hear it yeah. over the shot of the plane. And that's how you know you're dealing with the psychopathic murderer. Love that. This next question is one I, I thought of. This is one of the reasons why you're so perfect to be on here, because this is teeing up for you, Richard Brown. Cindy and Mike's next question, were there any other spinoffs other than Mrs. Columbo? Follow-up question, are you a Kate Mulgrew fan? And if so, was her defining role Mary Ryan on Ryan's Hope? Now, I know you're going to have a lot to say about Kate Mulgrew, so let's hold that second part. First of all, I don't believe there are any other spinoffs other than Mrs. Columbo, which I'm not a fan of, but have, are you aware of any other? The only thing I know of is the uh, short-lived uh, Mrs. Columbo on NBC, which I think lasted less than, less than a season. There may have been some other movies or something like that, but it didn't do well. Um have you ever gone into the Columbo, uh, the the novels? Have you ever no uh, novelizations? Like yeah. no, no. Do you know about this? I mean, I I know about them. I know that they exist, but I don't know if they're novelizations of the episodes or is it like fan fiction after the fact? Well, there's from what I can gather, there are two series of uh, of books, and they've been because it was all sort of mass market paperback. It kind of mm-hmm. comes out through different publishers at different times. But what I was able to isolate was that in the seventies, they were doing these kind of um, adaptation novels, basically taking the teleplays of the the TV shows and then novelizing them. Okay. Um, that then uh, in the the 90s i believe somebody else uh took up the the property as far as the books and wrote all of these (laughs) did these colombo stories in which colombo gets involved uh as uh, doing his detective work um with um real life uh uh crime incidents so colombo uh ripped from the headline yeah so colombo uh uh 
solves the Kennedy uh, assassination, Columbo, no. Columbo, and uh, the Charles Manson murders. Just no. Columbo just no. finds just, finds out where Jimmy Hoffa is buried. Yeah, I'm not, I don't I don't support or approve of that. You can't have Columbo without Peter Falk. Full stop. Period. I'm I'm saying if somebody out there in your in your uh, uh, listenership, uh, you know, is missing a Columbo spinoff. They like mystery novels. Maybe they get their jollies off of uh, these these books, which you can still find on eBay. They're very cheap. Okay, maybe. However, also Mrs. Columbo shouldn't be because, again, part of the ethos of the series and part of the genius of the series is the character you never see and who you're not even really sure exists. Um, that that is that is part of the DNA. You can't break that by then having Mrs. Columbo have a series. I don't that that doesn't work. That that is outside the universe for me of what makes the series special. Yeah, and to it should see be said, her breaks the spell. It should be said that this miss the Mrs. Columbo, I think maybe 1981 or 1982 on NBC, the producers of Columbo were completely against the idea. Mm-hmm. Um Peter Falk is not on any of the episodes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a it's yeah, I know. Columbo, it's outside yeah. the, the universe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not very good either. Yeah. Uh, All right. Now, Rick, do I have to ask you if you're a Kate Mulgrew fan? I don't. I know you are. I uh, am, but I'm, I'm uh, this uh, Ryan's Hope thing caught me off guard. Everybody knows <laughs> that Kate Mulgrew is Captain Janeway on Star Trek Voyager. Right. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of shocked that Cindy and Mike would, well, they do say if so was her defining role. Uh, maybe they're soap opera viewers or maybe Cindy is a soap opera viewer, but of course it's Janeway. I mean, that's the defining role, period. So Peter Falk's real life wife was in at least one episode. Did she appear in more? Did they meet on the Columbo set? I have no knowledge of any of this. I got it all. I've got, I've done all the work on this. Okay. Who was she? Okay. Shara Denise. Oh, Okay. Okay, so she was a she was a she was in a lot of TV shows for uh, many many years. Right. Well, she was a character actress before uh, before her marriage to Peter Falk, uh, Peter Falk's uh, second wife. Um, mm-hmm. She was in uh, six episodes between wow. uh, between the um, the NBC series and the ABC version. Uh, she only played the killer once. Uh, in a 1991 ABC episode called Murder of a Rock Star. Mm. Um, they, uh, um, they met on the set, not of uh, Columbo, but on a, a movie called Mickey and Nicky. Sure. Um, Peter Falk. It's and a Jock- cast. Peter Jock. And- it's a Cassavetes movie, yeah. isn't it? Well, actually, it's an Elaine May movie. Oh, it's an Elaine May movie. Right. That's right. It. I think it looks really good. I haven't seen it, but I went. And I haven't seen it either. Was- However, the like a great movie, the, the lone Cassavetes appearance in the Columbo universe. Uh, I think it's Etude in Black, yeah. where he's the conductor. Yeah. Is also directed by John Cassavetes and John John Cassavetes and Peter Falk were best friends. And it's the most indulgent of the Columbos. (laughs) There is so much actorly indulgence as only two best friends in complete control of all the mechanisms of a major network television series could just allow each other to go so far off the rails. It's really worth watching. Okay. Okay. Columbo was one of four, I believe, Sunday night mystery movies. Rank them. This is good because this is going to get into some. Uh, I've heard of three. I, th- I think I heard of two of the other ones, and then the third one was such a crazy idea 
that I I couldn't I'd never heard of it and uh, I haven't looked for it yet. It's the one where they where it's basically like Columbo in the Old West. Quincy, essentially, it's like, Quincy in the Old West. Oh, it's it's like a medical examiner in the Old Western yeah, times. So Richard Boone <laughs> plays a nineteenth uh, uh, century uh, Old West um, kind of investigator who uh, specializes in. Um, yeah, forensic techniques of the uh, uh, of the old west of the old west. Okay, I've, I've never of, seen that, but I'm going to go ahead and say that's number one. That's, I'm ranking that ahead of Columbo. Them? Okay, yeah, she says rank them. All right, so that that sounds so bonkers. I'm going to go ahead and say that's number one. Yeah, I had never heard of Heck Ramsey before either. <laughs> Just so to be clear, clear here, this this Sunday night mystery movies series. Uh, was in the seventies was a format with that they called a, a, a wheel show. So yes, uh, these Columbo episodes were depending on the year they might be between seventy and ninety minutes long, as opposed to you know the usual television hour. So it was a movie every Sunday night. It's a movie typically yeah. uh, with these four shows in a month. You would rotate through uh, you know a, uh, a a wheel of shows. Yeah, a wheel of shows. Uh, so yeah. you'd see a Columbo one week. The next week you'd see a Heck Ramsey. The next week you'd see a McMillan and Wife. Big fan of McMillan and Wife. You like that? I like that. I like that show. Um, could you say anything about Rock Hudson? Uh, and I'm not <laughs> quite sure how old Rock Hudson. Was. Rock and Susan. Is it Susan St. James? St. James. She's got to be 20 years younger, if not more than that. Yeah, I can say a word about it. Hollywood. <laughs> He plays a uh, the the uh, a San Francisco police commissioner. Yes, and what was the other one? The other one is the spinoff of the Clint Eastwood movie, McLeod. McLeod, love McLeod. Are you a McLeod fan? Um, Dennis Weaver. I'm not the most knowledgeable fan, but I can tell you, Dennis Weaver riding that horse. Great. It kills me. It's so good. Yeah, love McLeod. This one, like, again, uh, to me, it's a, the, the, you know, format of it's in contemporary New York City, but he's supposed to be like this cowboy yes. who, for some contrived reasons, has become a New York City police detective. And he right. literally rides around solving crimes on a horse. What's not to love? Yeah. What was Peter Falk doing before Columbo? What did he do afterwards? Well, before he was a two-time Academy Award nominated actor. Right before, during. Um, what was he nominated for? Peter Falk was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Murder Inc. in 1960. Okay. And for Pocket Full of Miracles in 1961. Huh. I did not realize that. I had gotten the impression that he uh, kind of struggled uh, as a uh, as a film actor, but maybe that was a little earlier on before he got those other roles. My impression was that he that he you know, that he did a lot of sort of off-Broadway work, a lot of uh, TV work in the 60s, and then, uh, you know, got this Columbo gig, which became a defining thing. But, if, yeah, if he was getting film, you know, Academy Award uh, caliber film roles, good for him. I did not know that. Well, he also, you know, he appeared in a couple iconic Cassavetes movies, Husbands, A Woman Under the Influence, that's 1970, 1974, also Opening Night, another Cassavetes film. 77. Mickey and Nikki, as you said, is 76. He was in a freaking movie, The Brinks Job. You know, he, he, he listen, he, he had, 
he had a he had one he had a career all over all over stage screen. Yeah, I guess maybe it's just the the you know the, benef- the benefit of being uh, you know alive uh, after the 1960s that I think yes. of him as should you know the guy in a Princess Bride and yeah, um, Murder by Death. Um, mm-hmm. Now, have you heard this uh, conspiracy theory, which my guest Ben brought up when we did the Princess Bride? Have you heard the theory that in Princess Bride, where Peter Falk plays the grandfather serving as a narrative device, is actually playing, without saying so, Columbo as a grandfather in The Princess Bride? Have you heard that theory? Uh, Only on your podcast. That's probably where it belongs. I do want to get in uh, this uh, alleged uh, story. It could be apocryphal that, again, Peter Falk uh, had gotten a lot of work on the stage and was trying to break into movies. He came out uh, to California to do a screen test with Columbia, and a uh, Columbia executive said, uh, for the same price, I can get an actor with two eyes. (laughs) I doubt the veracity of that story. It just has the ring of one of those Hollywood stories that's just too good to be true. But yes, uh, Pierre Falk did lose an eye as a young man. Also, and that gives the, him also for the benefit uh, of uh, uh, the uh, the your your uh, Cindy and Mike, yeah, Cindy and Mike, uh, listing these questions. Uh, Peter Falk didn't really make an entry into acting until he was uh, past thirty years old. Right when he was uh, younger, he had spent time sort of uh, bouncing around from different colleges. He was in the Merchant Marines, and then ultimately, he was a bureaucrat for the State Budget Office of Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm just looking at these numbers here. <laughs> Something's not adding up. <laughs> uh, and only guess uh, sort of got the acting bug when, when he was working in uh, in the community theater in Connecticut. Love it. And now, the, Cindy's next question is, Columbo's of Italian descent, convincingly at times, agreed. Was Peter Falk Italian? No. He's Jewish. Right. He's a, he's, uh, he's, he's a full Jew. He's a full Jew, yeah. both sides. Both sides. New York City, born and bred, I believe. Uh, how many episodes does his Basset Hound dog appear in? Did he have other dogs in the show? Was Peter Falk a dog lover? Well, as we've covered, he was not a lover of the idea of dog arriving in the show. But I think the Basset Hound won many people over involved with the series. Somebody involved with the show adopted the dog, I believe, afterwards. Right. I think just for people who might be listening or who don't uh, or are less familiar with uh, with Columbo, the dog's name is Dog. Yes. There's uh, I, I think there was uh, early on. There are right? some other attempted names of the yeah. dog in the episode where the dog is introduced. He's trying some out. Right. But. Ultimately, it's dog. Right. So he was, uh, you know, a, a basset hound who, um, you know, the art director or somebody uh, came, you know, ad- uh, adopted from a uh, from a shelter. He was a shelter dog. Um, yeah. Now, there's a little bit if you're uh, if you go down the uh, the rabbit hole or the into the dog's house, as it were, there's some mixed up information about this dog. Um, <laughs> one source uh, claimed that this dog was named Henry and that he also played the character of Henry on the show in six episodes of the show Emergency. Right. Isn't that true? Yeah. So apparently they were, he was, uh, uh, Henry played the, uh, the firehouse uh, mascot uh, on Emergency and this was the same Basset Hound. 
Well, as you know, as a big emergency fan, big Adam 12 fan. Love those shows when I was a kid. I, I, I those were on back to back, like I think on PIX or something when I was home from school. Yeah. And that was a good double. That's a good hour of TV right they there. They were great shows. Um, love the, the intro to emergency. I always loved the kind of like the business of starting the engine and and rolling up the gate and putting on the clothes and getting ready to go out. I always loved that. No, I experienced the same, uh, similar uh, jouissance, but it was always with one Adam 12, one Adam 12. Love Adam 12. Um, Adam 12, one Adam 12. Those are great shows. Another source claimed that uh, the Basset Hound that they used uh, in uh, Etude in Black, uh, again, this was the Stephen Bochco uh, mm-hmm. episode. It was the first use of the dog and that the dog died uh, at some point after appearing in one episode. And there are lots of people who say that uh, dog is not the same dog in every episode. Mm. And so then we kind of conflate that. Well, are you saying that hen, that dog on emergency is not the same dog? I don't know how to unravel all that, but um, I wouldn't bother. Oh, really? I'd like yeah, to get to the bottom of it. It's not really that important. Okay. No. Let's move on. What notable actors appeared on the show before they were famous? Just watched an episode with the young Kim Cattrall. Jamie Lee Curtis. Season six. Bye Bye High IQ. She played Bye a- Bye High IQ Club. That's a great, weird, weird episode. She played a waitress. Yeah. Uh, Katie Seagal of Married with Children. Sure. And did children fame. Played a secretary and candidate for, for a crime. Season three. Mm-hmm. Pat Morita of Karate Kid fame. Sure. He was some sort of uh, maybe, a, uh, I don't know, uh, he was the uh, butler or something in the mm. Etude in Black. Uh, he was John Cassavetes. Uh, basically, he was the guy who answered the door. He answered the door. Yeah. Uh, yes, because as you know, all conductors have mansions in Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, Ed Bagley Jr., uh, yeah. plays a cop in a season seven episode. He's great. He's great. There's a couple of uh, people. Again, these are people who uh, appear as extras uh, mm-hmm. and are uncredited in the show. Jeff Goldblum appears in an episode. Judd Hirsch appears in an episode. Um, not as named characters. They're act- you know they're actually mm-hmm. you know background people. And I-, I would be malpractice not to mention the appearance of. Sorrel Book as the oh. gayish record executive oh in the, uh, Swan. One Island. of the great cameos in the history of Columbo, and uh, another episode really worth checking out because it's it's in a typical Columbo to me for some reason because of the star power of Johnny Cash. Like it just Johnny Cash is such a presence that it's one of the rare Columbos where I think the guest star. And Johnny Cash is not a great actor. I don't mean that disparagingly. That's not his day job. But he's so larger than life and likable, yet has a core of menace and darkness that it's it's an atypical episode. And Sorrel Book appears as a weirdo, round-rimmed, glasses-wearing manager who's shot in like extreme close-ups in what's supposed to be some kind of 60s psychedelic thing i don't know what the hell's going yeah, on with people that will know sorrel book as uh boss hog on the dukes of hazard right uh, as his sort of signature role this was a very different uh <laughs> it was very different work for him in that in the in his columbo episode what was his interest in the johnny cash character i don't know 
again, I thought he was like a record executive who was just sort of standing there staring at Johnny Cash. Yeah. It was odd. Really weird episode. Uh, anyone else? Uh, that's all I had. Do you have other people that would that you would know? But I, it's a good segue or... into the next question, which is what other notable directors directed? And of course, very famously, Spielberg directed the very first episode of Columbo, Murder by the Book, in 1971. And it was one of Spielberg's very first directing credits. This was kind of after Spielberg had been found uh, and cultivated, I think, in the universal system, right? Like, that's where his his mentor was. He was put into work d- directing television series. Did also did some Marcus Welby's, which you know I'm an ironic fan of, and some segments of Night Gallery. So Spielberg. Yeah, I just want to mention this, uh, you know, as a as a network TV historian, mm-hmm. the idea that Steven Spielberg would have made the first non pilot uh, episode of this show, and that the episode that he made is regarded by many people as one of the best in the history of this mm-hmm. music. And this one was, this was murdered by, murdered the, by the book. Uh, it's a great episode. And it's a great, great episode. episode. I mean, everything really good. It was all right there. They, you know, as far as the setup between, uh, you know, uh, Columbo and the arrogant rich guy and the way that the show was put together, all the pieces were there from the very first episode. He didn't even mm-hmm. need a dog. Nope, and the direction is is apparent. You can tell that Spielberg has chops, even though it's the very one of the very first things he directed. Let's start with Columbo himself, because Peter Falk he directed Blueprint for Murder. I think he only did one. That's the only one. Uh, this one I was surprised by. I didn't know this. Nicholas Colasanto, coach from Cheers. Yeah, well, he did the Johnny Cash episode. Correct. Directed that, and he also directed the Etude in Black, the the Cassavetes episode that we. Oh, I thought Cassavetes directed that. Uh, well, I have mine. Yeah, I think you you must be right. Maybe Cassavetes directed something else. It's possible. I, I didn't have Cassavetes as a director. Uh, maybe I maybe I made that up. Um, yeah, I didn't know Nicholas Colasanto was a TV director, but apparently he directed a ton of things. McLeod, Ironside, Chips, did Bonanza, we, did we say that Starsky and Hutch. Ben Gazzara. Sure. How's that for a weird crossover? Ben Gazzara directed two episodes, Troubled Waters and A Friend Indeed, both very good. Did Ben Gazzara do a... Heavy uh, on any? No. Did he act on any episodes? He did not act as a heavy. That's very interesting. So, uh, of course, McGowan. McGowan directed well, five. McGowan directed five. I mean, McGowan, you know, is essentially like probably the third leg of the, the Columbo triangle, really. Like, you, you know, he's so involved, not only portraying the killer in so many episodes, but directing five episodes over 25 years is pretty impressive. Leo Penn, father of Sean and Christopher Penn and musician Michael Penn. Yeah. Very famous director. He directed three episodes of Columbo, uh, including what to me is the most over the top episode, which I believe me, I don't say that lightly, but any old port in a storm is the Donald Plaisance episode where he's, one half of a brotherly duo that owns a vineyard. <laughs> and it's so unbelievably ridiculous. The heights to which Donald Pleasance allows himself to go as an actor is really something to marvel at and be impressed by. Is it I mean, a good episode? It's, I mean, it's good for watching an actor like Donald Pleasance 
just roam so far off the reservation, you could never even hope to get him back. His roaring speeches and screeds and (laughs) sweaty, beady-eyed, tyrannical rants are just a a thing of incredible hilariousness. You got to watch that. Jonathan Demme, interesting. Which one did he direct? He did Murder Under Glass. Oh, it's about the cook. Is that another the, cooking is show? The, I think it's either the, it's the restaurant critic, isn't it? Yeah, okay, that sounds right. Richard Quine. Who's that? Well, he was a fresh young face who became a Hollywood star in the, in the years before World War II alongside Mickey Rooney, Babes on Broadway, uh, For Me and My Gal. Uh, he created the Mickey Rooney Show. And for Columbo, he directed Dagger of the Mind, Requiem for a Falling Star, which I think is one of the best Columbo episodes. Love it. And Double Exposure, uh, which I believe is one of the, isn't that one of the Bob Culp episodes? Where he's the, or, you know, is the Jack Cassidy where he's the evil photographer? I thought it was Robert Culp who was the evil, evil photographer. It's Robert Culp, yes, right. Like Robert Culp and his ascots as like <laughs> the neighborhood photographer who's kind of like swanning around as an important <laughs> figure, right? Uh, so anyway, those are some notable directors uh, i'll give you a, just a couple more um norman lloyd who is uh, still with us at age 200 <laughs> uh people will uh remember norman lloyd as a uh, as uh dr ashlander on uh, saint elsewhere but oh uh, yeah love him uh, but he was very involved with uh way back in the 40s with um uh orson wells and the mercury theater mm. um, interesting i mean the guy's just been in everything and, and he literally I mean, he's got to be 106. Well over 100 years old. That's amazing. And he's still alive. Still still alive. I just saw him on TV um, sometime within <laughs> the last year. Amazing. Um, wearing a beret. Love it. I'm waiting for your beret phase to start. <laughs> uh, Sam Wanamaker. Sam Wanamaker. Father of Zoe Wanamaker? Uh, well, I don't know who his children are. Sam Wanamaker was a... Uh, uh, did uh, both the Hollywood film guy and a TV guy for a long time in the 60s and 70s. Now, help me out here. Your movie, Quentin Tarantino. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hollywood. Now, yeah, the car- the director of the Western yes. is supposed to be based on... In fact, I think the character is called... Sam it is Sam Wanamaker. Yes. Uh, it's not Sam Wanamaker, who died in the 80s, maybe. But it's supposed to, it, the character is Sam Wanamaker. Yeah, but who is yeah. the actor who plays Sam Wanamaker? In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah, I got confused because I thought it was Sam Wanamaker. But then I just found out this morning that he's been dead for uh, 40 years. He seemed like a guy who was a, a movie director playing a movie so director. Anyway, he did a Columbo also. He's Friedrich von Trapp. Oh, really? Yes. That can't be. He is Friedrich von Trapp in The Sound of Music and Peter Parker Spider-Man on the television series The Amazing Spider-Man. What's his name? Nicholas Hammond. That's fantastic. I didn't know. I made, I did not make that connection. He's on a Brady Bunch, too. Yeah, he was a season four guest on the Brady Bunch. Yeah, he plays the guy 90. who he's the guy who uh, rejects Marsha after she uh, gets her nose broken by a, 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 a rogue football. The famous football episode. He's the hunk, Doug Simpson, who rejects Marsha. I did not. Uh, I did not put that all Waltons, Hawaii Five O, General Hospital, Logan's Run. Anyway, he played Sam Wanamaker in. Uh, he was great in that movie. 
He was great. Now I, gotta, now I am going to have to see it again. I've been- you you got to see it again. It's phenomenal. Uh, how do you think the show holds up in 2020, Rick? Well, this is an interesting question to me because, uh, you know, if, if, if you search around on the Internet, you can find all you can find people, you know, begging for some kind of um, Colombo uh, uh, renaissance. There's a petition quite popular where people are asking for Mark Ruffalo to be cast as Columbo in a reboot of the series. Well, I've made a, we'll get to it in a second. Cause I made a list of my dream uh, casting okay. Columbo, but um, just to sort of like, I had kind of combined uh, this question with the next one about um, she had said something about uh, the, uh, could, can you do a show in 2020 where a detective relies on intellect and persistence? I don't mm-hmm. see why not. Um, you know, that in this, in this age of, uh, of, uh, uh, peak television, um, on, uh, I mean, there are all kinds of shows that, uh, that, uh, go into deep intellectual, uh, content. I'm not necessarily saying Columbo is deep and intellectual, but there's no reason why this show couldn't work today. Uh, as far as the content is, is concerned. The other thing is, um, this show, uh, is very popular for something that's been uh, mm-hmm. been off the air for a long time. Um, yes. It's uh, got a lot of life. Well, um, I mean, what, well, uh, you know, for people who follow podcasts, I mean, here we are talking about Columbo on a film, you know, a TV show on a film mm-hmm. podcast. But if you really want to learn everything there is to know about Columbo, I counted there are plenty. six different <laughs> people who are running, uh, who are running uh, deep dive shows on every episode. Yes. Quality varies. Um, uh, there's the Scottish guys uh, who are uh, actually pretty good. They're a little dry, and I like that. Mm-hmm. They're kind of hard to understand sometimes, yes. but they but they're good together. Uh, yep. There's another one called Columbros. Um, <laughs> there's. I, I'm one taking one. a set against the title, but maybe it's better than it. Maybe it's better than the title. But I forget which one. There's one. <laughs> there's one where the where the podcaster uh, for some reason in every episode. Uh, he's holding throughout the episode. He's holding a, a glass full of ice. And it's, he's either got iced tea or scotch or something that's always uh, clanging around the microphone. Um, mm. I consider that uh, 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 bad podcasting. But if uh, yeah, but if you, I mean, there. As far as I know, there are like I said, there are six different people uh, who are running podcasts all about Columbo. Yeah. I don't know if there anybody's doing uh, a Macmillan and Wife. Uh, Probably podcast. not. So there, you know, there are things about this show, which we can go into if, if you want, um, that resonate with people today. Um, there, there are elements of this show, its format, that, it, that makes it timeless and relevant today. And I don't see any reason why it couldn't be, uh, why it couldn't be remade, wh- whether it be a movie uh, or some kind of um, uh, uh, TV series. Well, I'll give you one reason why it couldn't is you got to find another Peter Falk. I mean, it's all about Peter Falk. It's not even about the character because the character on the page has written. That's not where the genius lies. The genius of the TV series lies entirely in the performance, not even the performance, the embodiment of the character by Peter Falk, the mannerisms, the tics. I mean, this is an acting performance. that isn't just about the recitation of lines. It's about his control of his body and his gesticulating and his relationship to the other characters 
is something that I, you know, I was asking you if you had read anything from uh, Daniel Lavery, who has written a lot about Columbo in various blogs. There's a blog called the Shatner Chatner that, that has a lot of very interesting takes on Columbo. And, you know, one of the things, Columbo's relationship to everyone else and his relationship to the protagonists is so different and so humanistic, right? Like, even though he knows they're a murderer, he's still unfailingly polite and he still relies on manners and guile. And that's, I think, the the key to the character, of course, is that he's always several steps ahead of the very people who consider themselves to be many miles ahead of the detective. And that's part of the joy of the series. But I think people want Mark Ruffalo to do it because I think they think he physically looks a little bit like a younger Peter Falk and could maybe embody some of the mannerisms. But I mean, the starting point to any reboot would have to be you'd have to find someone who can take that character to a new place. Well, that's why it's got to be the right actor. Um, Who could it be? Give me your short list. I'm just going to, I mean, just to sort of like the, when I see, you know, as, uh, as a, you know, as a casting director, as a producer, Mm -hmm. what I'm seeing here is I want an actor who can take this, take this shambling detective character and find the essence um, without, doing a mimicry of Peter Falk. Yes. All right. I agree. So, okay. you know, that the, that. You can't be an actor in a Woody Allen film doing your two bit Woody Allen impersonation, no, which but most actors end up doing. How do you feel about Robert Downey Jr.? You know, you know how to hit me right where it counts. Don't you? How do I feel about it? It would be fucking amazing. Yeah. That's how Robert I feel. Robert Downey Jr. is the Robert quality. Downey Jr. He is could quality of guy play this role. Who could he's the he's the quality of guy. Rick, could, can yes. you see that? What is it? What is that? It's goosebumps. I literally got goosebumps at the idea of Robert Downey Jr. rebooting Columbo for Netflix. Yes. I wish I hadn't said it first because the rest of them are too weak. <laughs> You don't have to say anything else. All right. Don't even mention anyone else. All right. That has to happen. Can I give you, how about if I give you my list of, of the give new, me some, wait, give new, me some all, I know you're, I know you're, I know you're woke. Give me a couple of your alt casting options. Cause I'm sure they're on there. Okay. Well, I liked, uh, she would tell OG for. Interesting. As, you know, as the, I was going to say African-American, but he's British. What's the, um. What's the what's the actorly quality that you that you see in him? I think it's the age, the shape, uh, the fact that he can do uh, uh, he can do um, uh, unshaven. <laughs> he has a um, he has a kind of quizzical intelligence and curiosity about everything in a scene that he's in yeah. that could work. Yeah. I could see that. I liked him. Um, I like Clive Owen. Yeah. Next. That's all I got. But I am going to give you. You should have ended, Rick. How did you not? How did you not start that list with Clive Owen, then go Chiwetel, and then end with the bomb, the mic drop of Downey Jr., which is so freaking brilliant. You started with the best. Cut everybody out except for you. Have no female Columbo. Uh, I've got. I have my list of Mrs. Columbos. Oh no, no. But give me. Let's. I mean, the obvious reboot. Is you don't do Mrs. Columbo. You don't define the female oh, character okay. through her marriage. You simply have Columbo, and you know it's okay. the female progeny of Columbo. So, do you want these in 
I want you to not make the same mistake. Okay. I'm going to give you my lesser choices, and then I'm going to okay. give you my, as you say, mic drop choice. Do you have a mic drop for this that's as good as fucking Robert yes. Downey Jr.? Because that is mind-blowing. Yes. There's nothing that could be that good. But okay, go. Okay. Uh, Lena Dunham. <laughs> Lily Taylor. Lily Taylor? Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. That could work. I love Lily Taylor. Great actor. She would be phenomenal. She has all the qualities. That's a great choice. Kate McKinnon. No. Mindy Kaling. Yes. No. Yes, because I love her. No, because too comedy. Like it can't just be comedy. I know Mindy can do a lot of things, but her the quality that sparkles for her on screen. I don't. I don't see her as Columbo. No, but I like. But I love her. Are you standing at your standing up desk? I'm standing at my standing up desk. Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> That's pretty fucking good. That's pretty good. Is that your mic drop? That's my mic drop. That's pretty fucking good. Because you know why? So the, the key defining aspect of the Columbo character as far as everyone else in the episode is concerned, is that they underestimate him, correct? That they because of his- They think he's a buffoon. They think he's a buffoon. He's shambolic. His clothes are horrible. He's easy to overlook. And that's an essential part of the character. So when you say Melissa McCarthy, who has the intelligence, who has the wit, who has the warmth and the humanism, and- Yes, she 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 embodies a person that in our society people would overlook or underestimate. Yes. So that's a brilliant choice, Rick. You're very good at this. Those are awesome. I would I, I think of those two. I'm not even sure which one I'd want to watch more. Downey, oh you know, Robert Downey Jr., just to diverge for a second here, um, is one of the careers that really bothers me the most when I think about what could have been. It's kind of like you can't begrudge anyone for making the ungodly amount of money he must have made in the last 20 years doing Marvel movies, right? He's probably made half a billion dollars. Like probably no exaggeration, he's made probably between 250 to 500 million dollars for his work in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Foundational core member probably was on board so early and had rebooted his career at that time to the point where he probably got a pretty nice percentage of the films that he was in that were also incredibly successful. But when you think about how good he was when he was in movies that required him to be good, it's such a loss to, to acting that for the last 20 years, we haven't really been able to see any good Robert Downey Jr. performances in movies. Oh, I agree. Okay. And you would think that uh, somebody of his uh, acting ability would be that the idea would be, I'm going to do this, this Marvel yeah. franchise so that I can draw one for more, them, one for me. So I can draw more attention to, um, you know, more indie type yep. work. And what we get is the judge. I mean, it's Which not is bad. terrible. Uh, it's terrible. Or Dr. Doolittle. 
Dr. Doolittle is a disaster. Sherlock Holmes, as we talked about a little bit on the pod before, you know, the first Sherlock Holmes is pretty good. Like That's a good character one. for him. But, um, you know, the, the Downey Jr. of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. That's a really underrated, brilliant movie that's worth checking out. Um, the Downey Jr. of Zodiac. Yes. Holy shit. What a fucking amazing supporting role. Um, that guy. I wanted to see that guy for 20 years. I haven't been able to see him. And I think that, you know, listen, you can't begrudge anybody doing anything they want to do. Like, it's his career. It's his life. I mean, go do it if it makes you happy. But. When you think about like how amazing it would be to see Downey as Columbo in a Netflix series, as smart as that could be, as funny as that could be. Although having done the Sherlock Holmes thing, he's probably a little bit better suited to that because that's like the genius, right? Like that's the quirky genius detective trope. So to do this, I'm now actually talking myself more into Melissa McCarthy now that I'm thinking about this, just because he's done Sherlock Holmes and did it very, very well. Right. Yeah. Um, I think you have to go female, black Columbo. You have to do something unexpected if you're going to do it. I don't think there's any point to do it with a white male again. I would do it in a different direction and I would take it in one of those directions that you're talking about. I think that's the way to go. Okay. Would you do um, it with a lot more explosions? God, no. I hope not. No. You wouldn't do it Guy Ritchie style. Not do Columbo Guy Ritchie style. <laughs> oh my god! How about this? How about Brad Pitt as Columbo? No, too pretty. Too pretty. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, one of the things yeah. about again, I, I thought you summed it up well when you're talking about Melissa McCarthy, but she's not afraid to play somebody who no is not is not beautiful on screen. I got another one for you. Yeah, I'm just thinking it through. Steve Buscemi. Mm, I'd have to see the screen test. Really? Yeah. I like too, him. Don't get me wrong. Too weaselly? Too... too uh... I, I don't know. I feel like I know him as a, as a conniving bad guy, and I'm not quite sure I can see the, you know, the heart. Uh, that lies uh, beneath the raincoat. Oh, are you kidding? There's so much heart in Steve Buscemi. You say so. I, 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 again, I, you don't see the heart? I got to see the screen test. It's He's Donnie for crying out loud. Who loved bowling. That was a long time ago. Okay, uh, Cindy's next question. Having lived and worked in LA in the early 80s, I realized some of the show's appeal is nostalgia. And I love all the location shots and the beautiful homes. Is this, Cal is this a California or West Coast perspective? And how does the show appeal to New Yorkers, for example? Well, the first thing is, I think what they mean is the show's appeal now it has a nostalgic appeal, right? It's people looking at an LA that kind of doesn't exist anymore and maybe nostalgic for it. But I put it in the category of shows like less, less than The Rockford Files, which does this brilliantly, which is The Rockford Files uses Southern California as a location and much the way Tarantino does in Jackie Brown, he's not showing you the glamorous glitzy Hollywood. He's showing you the everyday streets with the stores, you know, single story stores back to back, the, 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 the seventies ish kind of bars and restaurants with the banquettes and the, you know, the, 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 the lamps hanging over the tables, you know? So 
Columbo, I think, is always hilarious because as a studio shot series, you do have some of those locations where Columbo will venture out. But when when she's referencing the homes, those are all the most ridiculous sets pulled from the lot that they're shooting on, right? So these homes, these apartments, which I think you and I have talked about many times, like how hilarious the decor is in these places and how Baroque and over the top everything is in every set. Well, how many uh, giant sand-filled ashtrays do you guys have at the bottom of your stairs? Because in the episode we're talking about this week, uh, Abigail has two that are six feet apart. Yes. Yeah. No one has that. These are, these are like props that are dug out of like the universal prop barn for the first time, probably since the 1930s and forties when they were used you know, in black and white films or something. So the second set decoration in the homes, there are some good exterior shots, but you'll see those exterior shots in almost every TV series of this era. Um, so I don't know if the show has a California appeal because Columbo reads like such a New Yorker, but they don't really make a big thing out of that. You know, it's not Beverly Hills bunts, uh, but he is a fish out of water. That's part of the trope of Columbo. Um, so I don't know that the show has a particular appeal or disappeal for New Yorkers versus Californians, but I, I get the nostalgia. I mean, for me, part of this, part of Rockford Files, which I've talked about before on the podcast, which has an even dearer place in my heart and my life than Columbo, which I love, has more of that. That's more of what I'm interested in. I love that way that Southern California is portrayed in the Rockford Files because I feel like that's truer to what day-to-day life is there than the glorified vision of Southern California. Right. How many murders did Columbo solve versus how many killers got away with it? Um, And she kind of gives the answer here. There's, I think the only episode I know of where quote unquote, they got away with it is the great Janet Lee episode. Uh, that we referred to before. Yeah. Forgotten lady. I hadn't seen this one for a long time. Cause so good. I can remember if Columbo lets her go because she's crazy or because she's, it's not forgotten lady though. It's not forgotten lady. Forgotten lady is the one you were talking about before. Well, that was lady in waiting. Oh, lady in waiting. Right. Forgotten lady. Yeah. Janet Lee, Janet Lee plays actually kind of going back to one of Cindy's earlier questions. Janet Lee plays someone you could arguably say is closer to her status in Hollywood at that time, which is, you know, the former ingenue, in her case, uh, uh, star of song and dance films who... Yeah, she's the Norma Desmond. Uh, she's the Norma Desmond type. Now, in that in that one, she... She, quote unquote, gets away with it, but only because it's revealed at the end of the episode that she's going to die of a terminal disease. And her choreographer takes the rap. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that she's allowed to die with her dignity and her career intact. But isn't she also kind of Norma Desmond crazy? She doesn't really, you know, he's sort of like letting her off the hook because she doesn't really understand what what she did. It's a weird ending. It's a weird episode. I mean, it's she's actually one of the more conniving and like Machiavellian protagonists. And she has this brilliant sort of thing set up with screening one of her old movies and then kind of making it, she makes a splice edit 
when the film breaks and that's how Columbo catches her in the end because the yeah. running time is different and yeah. the butler, this is also another hilarious thing about Columbo. It's like, you know, people have butlers and maids and major domos and people who open doors in their homes and all these kinds of things that just don't really exist. Choreographers that live with them. Um, yeah. So it's kind of weird how it, it, in a way, I think that that Columbo-ness should have been more allowed for me in the Ruth Gordon episode, who I, I would much prefer Ruth Gordon to get away with it than Janet Lee. But Janet Lee is great in that role. Great. I, it's kind of the, it's the all that jazz of the Columbo universe. It's it's the look inside the performer's mind, right? Yeah. I'm thinking of that great scene that doesn't really have anything to do with the plot where they're finally rehearsing her comeback show, mm -hmm. which she wanted her husband, whom she killed, to finance. And I think he did not agree to finance the show, and that's why she kills him, so she can stage this big comeback show with her choreographer. And if you remember, when they're rehearsing the show, she kind of snaps and loses it. She's like, I can't work with these lack of professional dancers. Like, call me when you've got it worked out. And it's just showing this kind of imperious nature that she has. But yeah, at the end, the uh, Columbo knows that the choreographer is is taking the rap for her and lets that happen. It's a, it's a weird one. Yeah. It's, uh, just uh, for the sake of bookkeeping, there also is a in one of the ABC 90s uh, episodes. It's the one with Faye Dunaway, which I haven't yeah. seen, but apparently I haven't seen that either. Everyone mentioned that. Apparently, the there's it's a thing where Faye Dunaway's daughter takes the or is the killer and Faye Dunaway mm -hmm. takes the rap for her daughter, sort of Lana mm -hmm. Turner style. Um, yeah. So it's the only other one I could find where uh, Columbo knowingly lets the real killer get away. And again, it happened in the 90s Columbos, and that's not even a thing. So, I mean, literally, it's not a thing, Rick. When you watch those, it just doesn't have, I don't know how, same character, same actor. It, 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 I'm fascinated, in a way, how it doesn't have the thing the classic ones have. I don't know if it's a question of writing. I think what it is is a question of how the industry had changed and how TV had changed. And so those episodes are all pitched a little differently because it's the late 80s and the 90s. So kind of the tone of the show, the music is so different. And like, there's something about the simplicity of the earlier episodes, you know, that I don't know if it's a video versus film thing. Like, are those 80s, 90s ones shot on video? I don't know. It's just, it's not, the, the stories don't work. The character somehow doesn't work. I don't get it. I don't know why they don't work, but they don't work for me. What about Peter Falk in the 90s? That's what I'm saying. Is he too old? Is it him? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's him. I don't know if it's like, I think Peter Falk is a kind of, kind of guy who had ideas and wanted to try them out and wanted to have fun with the character. And maybe it just went on too long and his, the places he was taking, it just didn't work. But um, yeah, so those are the two that mentioned. Uh, next question. Watched one episode with Jack Cassidy where Columbo got a new raincoat bought by Mrs. Columbo, but ditched because it, quote, didn't fit. Did he also, did he always have the same raincoat in the same car until the end of the series? I don't know about the raincoat, but he certainly had the car. Sweet I, car. Sweet car. And also, I think I told you, I gleefully texted you when I started rewatching some Rockford files during the pandemic. And in the very first episode of the Rockford Files, which is their made-for-TV pilot length or movie-length pilot, 
uh, Columbo's car is visible on the pier in one of the introductory shots in the Rockford Files. Yeah. Which may be like, is that like a Stephen J. Cannell thing or something? I don't know. But I don't know about the province of the raincoat. I mean, the car is also an iconic part of of Columbo, and it's an iconic part of the character that the car, he has trouble with the car. He refuses to replace the car. Everyone is befuddled by the car. It's it's kind of a stroke of genius because it's not like a, it's not the car that an obvious New York type character would be driving in Los Angeles. It's like a Peugeot of some kind or a Renault or something. It's like a yeah, French car. I think it is a Peugeot. It's like a, it's a Peugeot. Peugeot. So it's like, it's just it's just another layer of like I love whoever resisted the idea to have him driving, you know, some kind of like New York car, like an old taxi cab or some stupid thing, and then went for this really weird car, which so fits the character. Yeah, it's as weird. It's as weird as the raincoat. It's as weird as the dog, and it comes up again and again as as is being pointed out here because it always becomes a you know a an element of the 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 sort of the class difference between Columbo, the Columbo, yeah. the, the cop and whatever um, rich person he is uh, he yes. to be interacting with in the episode we're discussing today. She drives a Rolls Royce. He offers mm-hmm. to give her a ride <laughs> Yes, <laughs> and ends up driving her Rolls Royce. But it's that uh, they use that a lot. Mm-hmm. You're right. It's a very class based series. It's it's having a lot of fun at that. Uh, how did the series age over the years? Any particularly good or bad seasons? Well, as we discussed, I believe all the late Columbo seasons are really not worth checking out except as curiosities. Um, uh, one thing I'll say on this is, is I, I was sort of like uh, reading some stuff on behalf of the the guys who were the original, um, the creators and producers of this show was that they, even though there are plenty of great episodes in the early seasons that in, and I'm talking about the NBC, the seven mm-hmm. seven seasons on NBC. Yeah, that they by the time it was the show was winding down, they started to feel like they wanted to put in more sort of um, human interaction in this show. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this episode that we're talking about with, with Ruth Gordon and the interaction between these two characters is so um, it's such a great example of the 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 direction that the show mm-hmm. went in um showing a relationship between the cop and the killer yes and yes that they're both um they're both adversaries and friends at the same time yeah uh and that's you know if you know if the question is did the series uh uh age well at least within the time that it ran um i, I think the argument argument can be is demonstrated by this that that uh, the show held up very well all the way through its se- seventh season, which is not the case with a lot of network TV that uh, that uh, shows, obviously, a lot of times they run out of gas. Um, and we've talked about it, too. I think um, I think these shows work uh, for a lot of reasons um, that just in terms of the chassis of the show, this show that there's a lot that's appealing about it to watch today. And you don't feel like you're watching something that is um, a relic. That's well said. And I think the, the interaction and the, the way in which the relationship between Columbo and the protagonists was allowed in season seven to really be more one of 
not equals, because we always know Columbo knows exactly what's going on and is two steps ahead of the protagonist. But but yeah, it's it's different than some of the earlier ones where it's kind of a more traditional, like you're a killer and you're a maniac, you're insane, you're 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 rude, you're arrogant, you're closed off, and there's no getting into you except to catch you. Whereas these episodes, I think in season seven, have much more interesting dynamics at play. And another thing to cite uh, Daniel Lavery's writing, they wrote a really interesting thing about how for many of the protagonists being finally caught by Columbo is not, it's a moment of release. It's a moment of quietude and peace actually, because they can stop. And, and there are many, many examples throughout the life of Columbo where you can see the killer drop that whole antagonistic uh, attitude towards Columbo once he really catches them and reveals them, right? There's always these little scenes sometimes where they're, there's relief. Like I think of the Roddy McDowell one, um, you know, there's, there's sometimes a rueful wry kind of, um, they're impressed. They, they, they concede, you know, um, but also as, as Lavery says, it's almost as if they're aware that now they can begin to heal and get better from the damage that caused them to do these things. And that's, you know, they're not, they're not led away in cuffs sneering. They're not unrepentant, right? Like there's this humanistic thing that somehow comes through in these largely silly stories. There's another great website where someone does a legal analysis. Back to Cindy's question about who got away with it. There's a great site that does an analysis of whether the case would hold up, which of course, never. I mean, even in even in Ruth Gordon's case, it's so hilarious to me to think that like he's like, that's deathbed, deathbed evidence, ma'am. Very, very <laughs> convincing in a court. It's like, you couldn't prove anything. You couldn't prove he scratched that. You couldn't prove he put that in the light socket. Like, you can't prove any of these cockamamie stories of how Columbo is catching them. But, yeah, I think it's a, I, I think that what's great about the character is that the actor is so weird and interesting enough to take it to those places in an otherwise completely conventional movie of the week show that is not, it's not groundbreaking. It's not like, it's not going to be cited as one of the more intellectually deep television series, right? But the interplay between a Ruth Gordon and a Peter Falk at that stage of their career as actors, you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of better toe-to-toe matchups than that. And with all of these guys, all of these protagonists, right, who are going up against Columbo, like, I think they have to really bring the A game uh, because you have to both somehow be imperious and and believable as someone who is going to get away with it. But then they also have to have this vulnerability and this this flaw that allows Columbo to eventually, and only at the last minute, right? Columbo doesn't come in and solve it day one, even though you and I both know with the cigarette butts in the ashtray, it's already done. He already knows she did it. He lets them play themselves into the corner where their actions are the ones that reveal them to be the killer. So, yeah, there's a, uh, I was looking at, um, there was a, a, a blog post by the, that uh, 
Daniel uh, Lavery signs that you're a murderer in a Columbo episode, and it's a list. <laughs> um, there were a couple that were applicable here that you made me think of. One was you thought you were the cat in this particular game, and in fact, you have been the mouse all along. Totally. Yeah, 100%. The other one that I thought maybe, these weren't reference-specific episodes, but the other one that fits here is, you are shocked to learn you could possibly be considered a suspect, but your shock is polite and amused, and you're perfectly willing to entertain the detective's theories as long as they don't make you late for lunch. (laughs) No, no, come in, Lieutenant, come in, please, by all means. Lieutenant, I'd love to continue this conversation, but I simply must get off to the gallery. (laughs) That's the joy of Columbo, is it's both so hackneyed and cliched, and it's playing by the tropes and the rules of every kind of two-bit detective series ever, but it has some fundamental brilliances to it that are always on display, again, except for the later ABC seasons. But throughout the first seven seasons, you're going to reliably get what you're after. There really isn't you know, there really isn't a bad episode other than, you know, some of the stories are more ludicrous than others, I guess. Yeah. Some of the actors are more over the top than others, I guess. But like Ray Milland, how great is Ray Milland? It's not I mean, even that good an episode, but he's great it, in it. He's not, it's not that good of an episode, but Ray Milland is so fucking good. Like you have to be like us and think like, wow, that's Ray Milland, right? And is he on the downside of his career? Yes, but he is turning in a titanic performance in Columbo and he's killing it, you know? So another favorite old series is Perry Mason. It seems entirely of a different era, yet only a few years separates the end of Perry Mason and the beginning of Columbo. Do both define their era? Were you a Perry Mason fan? I don't really know it. I've seen the show before. I don't feel really qualified to answer this. Uh, I always get Perry Mason and Ironsides confused. Well, it's the same actor. It's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's one problem. Um, and I'm not quite sure about what they mean by define their era. I don't think of Columbo as defining, they mean an era of television. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure what they're getting. Yeah, I don't know. I was never a Perry Mason guy. I like the theme, isn't it? Is that Perry Mason? <laughs> it sounds like it. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it would pass on name that tune, but um, there isn't is Perry new- Mason the one that everyone is like going crazy about now that it's now on Netflix or something or yeah, Amazon Prime. Some new, a new Perry Mason. I haven't seen. It. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't watched it. Uh, you did skip one question, which I wanted to. Oh, I'm sorry. Try to squeeze in number twenty was. Oh yes. Uh, Other notable mystery series where you know who did it at the beginning. Yeah. Good question. Did you do any, uh, did you do any? I did not do any digging here. I couldn't, I mean, I, I know, I know I've seen some and some recent ones where, where we know before. Um, when we first, uh, uh, sort of like, uh, bonded on Columbo a few years ago, you were throwing out or throwing around the word, uh, you would, you would say to me, it's not a whodunit. It's a how catch them. Exactly. Which I thought you made up. No, I didn't make that up. But people, re- this really is a uh, it's a thing. In, yeah, in mystery uh, uh, in the mystery genre and literature, people do yes. they how catch them. Um, yes, the just a little uh, history here, if you want to include it, um, since this is a uh, a movie podcast, some examples you might or might point to are the Hitchcock films, Dial M for Murder mm-hmm. and Rope. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, a 1959 f- uh, French movie called Les Diaboliques. Mm, great uh, film, yes. Which some people on the internet claim was actually the inspiration mm-hmm. for the first TV iteration of Columbo. Right. Uh, Les Diaboliques was also made into a 1996 movie with uh, Kathy Bates and uh, Sharon Stone. Have you ever seen mm-hmm. it? Haven't seen it. Okay, no. I don't know how so Kathy Bates is supposed to be sort of the amateur sleuth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how much she mirrors Columbo either, but mm-hmm. just if people want to uh, look into it, that's a suggestion there. I haven't seen the movie. Um, as far as TV is concerned, oh, I'm sorry, still on movies here. Uh, Memento, the Christopher Nolan film. Uh, yeah, Fracture. Fracture with John Lithgow? Uh, it's the one, I think it's a Liam, uh, one of the Liam Neeson ones. Oh, right, right. Yes, okay, yeah. Uh, Frequency. That's the one Frequency. where that's the one where the father and the son... Jim Caviezel? Yeah, it's the one where the father and the son are uh, talking over the ham radio in, in, <laughs> right. in different time, uh, throughout time, and then there's, they're trying to solve a murder via the ham radio. Uh, <laughs> and... I don't know if you like this or not. I'm not a big fan, but people point out that uh, Knives Out, that at the, that the midway point of the movie, the uh, the killer is revealed, and that the movie spends its second act basically showing how, uh, basically deconstructing the the, mm. the murder. So that's potentially uh, yeah. another inversion. Another how catch him? Another. Uh, uh, it doesn't really roll off the tongue quite as well as Who Done It, does it? I like how catch him. Uh, TV series, uh, which uh, used this format uh, to some degree: Diagnosis, Murder, Monk, Criminal Minds, uh, Hannibal, in which everybody knows who the murderer is, except sure. for us. and of course Law and Order, Criminal Intent, which I thought was a which I thought was a great show. Uh, very Columbo-esque in the fact that it always starts with you seeing the murderer mm-hmm. doing the murder, and then the police are trying to spend the rest of the hour trying to catch up to the murderer. Oh, good ones. Those are excellent. Uh, what's your favorite mystery series today is our last question. Um, this is a hard one because to me, I mean, I'm a wormhole guy, so I don't really – keep such lists i can tell you what i'm really into now but that's not going to bear any that's literally is today for me i don't know about for you so but are are there you're talking about are we talking about mystery tv series here because i know you read a lot of mysteries too right are there yeah i think i think they're speaking of tv mysteries so i would confine my answer here to things like i would certainly put broad church on here which is probably the greatest television series ever made. Uh, that's probably the most ultimately fulfilling and rewarding mystery TV series I could think of in the last 20 years. Uh, currently I'm obsessed with the French show, the Bureau, which is in its fifth season. Is it a mystery? It's an espionage show. There are a lot of naughty mysteries at the center of the show. So I think broadly speaking, it's a mystery, but it's not a, cop or detective series so that probably doesn't qualify and then you know i'm going down various wormholes of british detective series or 
Scandi crime type series. Um, so when I, my fav, I think because of the bar that's been set for what I like uh, from TV mysteries, starting with Rockford Files and Columbo, today I can't, I, I gotta have something superlative and really unique. I, I don't like any of the innumerable kind of cookie cutter, more run of the mill mystery shows. You know, I don't, um, I've probably missed out on some that maybe are quite good. Like, um, like monk, you know, I never got into that. Um, what's the one that was recently, uh, he's a mystery writer himself. I know people really loved that show castle. You see that? I don't know it. These are shows that were really popular um, and had huge, huge fan bases. But I've got to have something. That's why I think I'd gravitate more towards more European TV dramas because they stand a greater chance of being pitched intellectually kind of far above what passes for mystery shows in America nowadays. Yeah. Although I did really enjoy uh, Jonathan Groff in Manhunter, the limited series that came out. That was very good. Uh, as far as this kind of thing goes, wait, John, that wasn't called, that was called, that wasn't called Manhunter. The Jonathan Groff were there, the, the, yeah, they're tra- Mindhunter, Mindhunter, yeah, Manhunter, Mindhunter, 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 yeah, yes, very good. Did you see that? I, well, I watched the first year, the second year, I kind of, I thought it had sort of uh, gotten a little dull, but I did like the first year. Yeah, the first year is great. Uh, big Jonathan Groff fan, he's great. Uh, phenomenal actor yeah i mean i will confess to being sort of a columbo uh homer in the sense yeah that, uh as, as mysteries go i'm not a huge mystery guy i'm a big columbo guy yeah uh, during its heyday i loved the csi uh uh really guys on on tv especially the the first the first las vegas one uh, i loved all the the science and the procedural stuff mm-hmm. um uh, eventually that kind of uh uh uh, ran out of gas too, but it was good in its prime in the two thousands. You can only see, you can only see David Kelly take his sunglasses off so many times to the who. <laughs> well, Rick, we've covered all the questions. It's been a deep dive. It's almost two hours. I'm going to edit this very lightly. I'm not going to cut in a lot of stuff. I'm going to let the conversation be the thing. Yeah. Because I've enjoyed talking with you. We covered a lot of Colombo ground, which is great. I'm probably going to end up being driven back to Colombo tonight and picking out an episode that maybe I haven't seen very much. Maybe that's always one I've considered a little weird, like the Bye Bye Sky High IQ Club is such a weirdo episode. I realized uh, while I was doing some digging around that I have never seen the uh, the Bill Shatner episode. Oh, that one too. It's oh, it's 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 good. It's good, but you would, you, you're, I don't know. I'm not going to color it for you. He's a TV executive or something. It's what's saying. Let's both watch that tonight and we'll compare notes via text. That sounds like fun, but you'll come back again soon. Let's do something else. These are easy. Conversational episodes are easy for me. So let's keep them coming. Absolutely. Well, I've really enjoyed doing this. I'll, uh, I'll leave you with my, uh, uh, plugs here, which is that anybody listening, uh, can follow my, curious uh, hilarity on twitter instagram at rf brown words that's words with an a rf brown words uh and uh you can see uh, my short fiction at my website which is rfbrown.net 
And if you find yourself wondering, where can I get more of this erudite, clever guest of Jason's on the pod, you can also go and seek out what really is one of the superlative episodes of the Full Cast and Group podcast when Rick joined me and we ran down Network and Chayefsky and Lumet in such great, great detail. It's also kind of a really fascinating conversation about growing up and television and news and all kinds of interesting things. So I encourage people to seek that episode out as well. And Rick, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, we will talk again soon. I'd love doing it. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. All right, buddy. Bye-bye.